Welcome to Fresh Meat, a freewheeling podcast from Manifest Group, where we talk to some of the best creative minds from all around the world. Expect great advice, new insights, and a lot of inspiration. Today's episode is coming to you from Nam, Melbourne, and we'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which we are, and pay our respects to elders past, present, and future. Don't forget to subscribe and share. So today's episode, Green is the New Black, ESG, recyclable, plastic-free, zero emissions, sustainable. These are just some of the latest marketing buzzwords being thrown around by brands when it comes to jumping on the eco train. With the ACCC cracking down following alarming stats that revealed 57% of businesses had promoted misleading claims about their environmental credentials, we're going to unpack what greenwashing is, how to spot it, why we should be concerned about it, and how marketers can avoid it to ensure their efforts to go green are actually genuine. I'm Isabel Thompson, officer, and I'm the Managing Director here at Manifest Melbourne. And joining me today is Angie Ferugia, the Director of Comms for B-Lab. We have Josh Kirkman, CEO, Surface for Climate, and Jarden Quinlan, Sustainability Leader at Stone & Wood. Hi, everyone. Hi, Isabel. Isabel. Hi, Isabel. Angie, do you want to start by sharing a little bit about yourself and uh, your role, why this topic's important to you? So, hi, I'm Angie Perugia. I'm the Director of Communications at B-Lab Australia and Aotearoa, New Zealand. I'm joining you from Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung country in Nam, Melbourne. And B-Lab is the global nonprofit network that's working towards a vision of an inclusive, equitable and regenerative economy. And one of the ways we do that is through certifying businesses as B Corps. B Corps are businesses that meet high standards of environmental and social performance, accountability and transparency. And one of the reasons why I am interested in this topic of greenwashing is I think it's an indication that we're working towards the right direction in terms of changing the role of business in our economy and society and that the attention and understanding from both consumers or citizens and regulators on this topic is a sign of the change we're seeking. For sure. So, Jarden, would you be able to tell us a little bit about yourself, what your role is at Stone & Wood and why this topic around greenwashing is so important to the work that you guys are doing over there? Yeah, so my name's Jarden. Yeah, pleasure to be here with you all this morning. I'm coming at you from Bundjalung Nation. So I'm here at our main site in Mwollombar, I am the sustainability leader for Stonewood Brewing Company and I uh, have the pleasure of looking after the sustainability portfolio for the brewery and also looking at you know the way that we engage with our community as well as having a really great I guess role and opportunity supporting with our ingrained foundation so I also sit as a as a director on the board of our ingrained foundation which is a public ancillary fund it's kind of our philanthropic arm I guess of, of the business and um, yeah I mean sustainability and is really important for us Uh, We've always taken a really kind of authentic approach to the work that we do in the community environment space. We say good beer is our thing. So that's really, I guess, our mission statement. And uh, when we say good beer, we're not just referring to the the quality drop of Pacific Ale, but we're also talking about good beer as in the, the impact and the approach we take with our stakeholders. So we take a stakeholder approach to business and we have for quite a long time. So, you know, when we talk about good beer being our thing, we're not just talking about the brewery, but we're also talking about our team internally, our suppliers. Uh, we're talking about our customers. We're talking about 
of, of course, the community and the environment. I have the pleasure of kind of looking after that community environment part of, of our strategy within the business. And yeah, greenwashing is, is obviously rampant in many, many forms across the sector. And um, yeah, it's really important to have this conversation today and to, to kind of raise awareness around, around it being an issue and also have a chat around how businesses and people working in this space can avoid it from happening and, and uh, I guess, counter it and negate it. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. No worries. And Josh. Yeah, so I'm Josh Kirkman, CEO of Surfers for Climate, and uh, I'm sitting here in my bed uh, a little bit with a little bit of a flu backing off the back of a flu on Warramai country. That's uh, foster tongue curry, in other words. Yeah, look, Surfers for Climate is still a relatively young nonprofit that is looking to kind of build a party wave of action for the surfing community in Australia with a top-line advocacy goal of trying to get a line in the sand on new oil and gas in Australian waters within the next five years. This subject of greenwashing is really interesting because I'll admit that I don't mind it. I think it's kind of cool if a business wants to have a go at greenwashing because it means, and and it's good that the ACCC is cracking down because, well, we know that they want to do better. Like we know that there's an ambition there. They just don't really know what they're doing and they're, they're trying things out without really doing the work. So, that's an invitation to a charity like us to have a chat and go, hey, we're doing some good work. You want to you have a chat with us and we'll help you do it better. So um, I think that it's a really interesting moment that businesses have seen this opportunity that being green can deliver value to them and get more customers and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I think that there's this big opportunity off the back of it to get them involved in some of the big issues that matter in this country. Absolutely. And there's a few of them for sure. <laughs> Andy, I guess just to start with you, granted that you're working with so many different brands and organisations across um, Australia and New Zealand, how would you go about defining greenwashing? And I guess what what are some of those warning signs that consumers should be watching out for? Greenwashing is essentially overstating or exaggerated misleading claims around positive environmental impact without the evidence to back it up in order to capitalise on the good intentions of citizens who want to make environmentally friendly choices. Unfortunately, the biggest offenders in greenwashing are often the ones that are doing the most harm. And uh, unfortunately as well, a lot of the people who are doing the good work are also reluctant to speak out about it because of the risk of greenwashing. And this is known as uh, green hushing. So there's that fear of criticism which has negative consequences as well because it's not really elevating the priority of sustainable business practice and the work that we need to do. Spotting greenwashing isn't too easy, so it can be a bit overwhelming, but it's important to remember that every choice you make does have an impact. And some greenwashing is more obvious than others. So really overstated claims like 100% zero waste or eco-friendly or 100% anything really you should question. And comparative claims or sort of product-specific capsule lines that are designed to be environmentally friendly are ones to watch as well because sometimes they don't necessarily reflect what the whole company is doing. And that's really what we need to look out for. So for example, you might be in a fashion store and you see a, a green tag or a you know, recycled product piece of clothing, but that's the only one and it doesn't necessarily reflect the waste or the impact of the entire business and particularly in the fashion sector, which is one of the most polluting sectors in the world. 
So you need to sort of question those those things. And I think what that is is an attempt by a brand to create what is known in marketing as a halo effect where they seek to benefit from the brand being the environmental or sustainable one across their portfolio. So one of the one of the things that we can also look out for is um, certifications. So the ACCC actually found that there was some misuse of certifications when they did their investigation, um, and it can be a little confusing for businesses and for consumers to understand what they represent and what they mean. Um, for example, some some businesses are using motifs or things that look like a certification that they've designed themselves, which are not actually representative of positive impact. And the good news is there are certifications that are rigorous and trusted like B Corp certification. And when you see that mark, you can trust it and know that it's a company-wide certification that represents a business that's meeting high environmental and social performance standards. Awesome. And Angie, I guess, you know, greenwashing is obviously a very big topic, but are there other forms of washing as well? Yes, we are in a state of lots of washing, surrounded by washing. So <laughs> I know that it happens to me a lot at home. I'm a mum of three, so there's plenty of washing around me. Um, no, but in terms in terms of greenwashing, we do see washing in other areas. So overstating claims in how you treat your people or how you treat communities, how you maybe trying to capitalise on vulnerable or disadvantaged groups and the desire for people to want to buy and support those groups. For example, rainbow washing, which is essentially we saw a lot of this in Pride Month where businesses were putting rainbows all over their merchandise and marketing when they're not actually doing a lot to help the LGBTQI plus community. So really kind of questioning when you see that kind of marketing that may seem blatant without the evidence to back it up. Other forms like blue washing, pink washing, there's so many types of washing, it's hard to keep up. Um, I think green washing has more recognition because it has the attention of the regulators. Awesome. Cool. So I guess maybe we'll start with you, Jarden. What are some of the efforts that Stone and Wood has been putting in place in terms of sustainability? And I guess, can you speak to whether anything changed when the brewery sold to Lion, was it last year? Nothing has really changed. Um, in short, uh, we're still very much focused on, on the community and the environment. I guess the cool thing about Stone and Wood with the founders setting it up it's always had a very much a community and environment focus. So we have our wheel or our stakeholder wheel that we've been using for, for quite a long time. And essentially that keeps us really focused on taking a stakeholder approach to the way that we do business. So for us, that's really important. So we, we try and take a holistic approach to business. And for us, that really kind of fits nicely and complements, I guess, our B Corp certification, you know, that, that really validates our approach and, and yeah, in terms of our approach and ensuring that we're kind of validating any of our claims, we work closely with, you know, certifiers such as B Corp. So for us, that's really important to have a third party like B Corp to validate those claims. And yeah, we try and make, we try and be as, as honest and factual as possible. We also try and make our communication as clear as possible. You know, when we're talking about sustainability wins, you know, for our brewing practices, for example, you know, we'd like to also include additional information around where and how these achievements were made, um, as well as information around any third party benchmarking or performance against, you know, our 
like a baseline. So it's really about for us, I guess we try and communicate in a way where we're able to demonstrate with evidence. And I guess the cool thing about Stone and Wood is from the get-go, we've always been quite humble. Like I don't think we've ever really been a brand that's has really liked to beat its chest about what we're doing in the sustainability space. We've we've always just kind of flown under the radar a little bit. And whether that's been intentional or not, I'm not sure. But I think there's a beauty in that because it's really become part of our core values and and our, our purpose. And I think that's just a, a key call out, you know, for anyone in this space that's really wanting to, you know, communicate or take a path down sustainability and communicate to their stakeholders. It starts with your why and it starts with with your purpose. And for us, that's something that we're we're continually you know focusing on. And yeah, it's really important for us. Awesome. That's absolutely central to to the B Corp movement, Jardin, like the starting with the purpose and the stakeholder governance approach and making sure that the work that you're doing um, across the organisation is backing up um, that purpose or living that purpose and your values as an organisation. And when it comes to greenwashing, and the overstating of claims it's if you're doing the work first and validated by an organization like b-lab as having the evidence to demonstrate that then you're much less likely to to make those mistakes so being transparent and honest i think the flip side as well is there are a lot of businesses doing the work doing the good work and doing the hard work but a little fearful to actually come forward and talk about it for fear of greenwashing, for fear of being criticised or or regulated. And that is, I mean, it's otherwise known as green hushing. And that has negative consequences as well, I think, because we need to see businesses leading the way so that we can learn from each other. And, yeah, leaders need to lead, and sometimes that means you make mistakes, um, which means taking risks. So yeah, when we we're green hushing is also not a great thing. So it's really ultimately it's really important that you're living your purpose and you're doing the work, and then the good communication will follow. Yeah, I would really it's, agree um, with that. Sorry, you go, Josh. yeah, I was going to jump in. No, I agree too, and I've just had the direct experience of that with a few brands lately. There has been some notable B Corps come off last or early this year or last year so rip curl became a b corp and also creatures of leisure the leisure collective over in wa really positive steps for the surf industry but i've i've spoken with other surf companies you know because that's what i do all the time trying to seek partnership and oftentimes they they don't feel they tell me privately a lot of these amazing things that they're doing but they never publicly speak about them because they don't want to be called out for not being perfect in all other ways so it's a really interesting problem, the green hushing, because I was blown away by what I heard from these other brands. And I'm like, well, you sound like you're almost a B Corp. Like you sound like you are one without the certification. And it's just an interesting problem. I think there's, there is really strong leadership in, in, you know, with the likes of Patagonia, who's been doing like so much good stuff for so long. And I feel like there's also this problem where no one feels like they're ever going to be as good as Patagonia. So they don't want to talk about it. And that's not what we need. Like we definitely need that imperfect action instead of the perfect inaction, which I think a lot of businesses do when they don't feel pure enough to to speak about their successes. They're too hung up on what they're not doing right or could do better. So it's a really interesting problem to overcome. Mm. And just on top of that, Josh, that's really great insight. 
yeah, I think it's 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 really about storytelling. And I think that's something that Patagonia does really well. And that's something that I'm really inspired by is, is brands that are actually able to, you know, tell it how it is and, and tell it transparently and honestly and authentically. And for us, that's something that that we're really passionate about is telling the whole story, telling the whole context and and really being open and transparent and doing it in a way where we're able to inspire people. And yeah, I think there's totally a hesitancy, especially with, you know, the ACCC report that came out in March and the the sweep around sustainability claims. Um, it's definitely something that we've, you know, we've been flagged about and we've talked about and, you know, I've briefed our marketing team on. So it's something that, you know, all of our team is aware of and across, which is really important. But at the same time, like, I think we need to lean into raising awareness and, and authentic storytelling in this space because brands, you know, such as your Patagonias and your Rip Curls and your Creatures of Leisure, they have they have power to to really raise awareness with their customer base and their stakeholders and there's definitely a place to tell all those stories and you know i think given that human nature where we're all archetypal beings we all thrive off storytelling and you know books novels and movies there's there's 100% power in that so yeah i think it's it's definitely a a line and a balance to kind of take um in that space and for us, you know, there's definitely a risk of us sounding too corporate when we're putting out sustainability messaging. And, you know, we're, we're, we're obviously part of the Lion family of businesses now. And, you know, they're really cool because they're super transparent, super open with their data and, you know, having um, their, their data available for, for customers, which is a really great offering and something that, that we're really keen on as well. And But at the same time, you don't want your messaging to feel too corporate. You want it to have that authenticity and that I guess that vehicle for consumers to connect with and actually understand, you know, so it's kind of like, it's easy to, to just put all the data up there and, you know, have the, have the reports and, and everything there. But if no one's going to read it and if your consumers and, and the community don't understand what's being said, then that's also a problem. So having the ability to actually communicate and connect with, with your stakeholders and, and have, have that sustainability messaging clear is also really important. Mm. Definitely. Yeah, I'd, I'd definitely add to that and say that it's also about telling people what you're not doing and what you're not good at. I think that's where you build the trust and the authenticity in your brand. And to do that, it really does require detailed storytelling because there's so much in the nuance of that. But it's quite refreshing when you see a brand come forward say, to say, we're doing this really well, but we're also not doing great over here. And this is what we plan to do about it. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, like yeah, B Corp 100%. offers you a framework to identify where you are doing well and perhaps where you can improve. And that gives you kind of a bit of confidence to go to your stakeholders and your audiences with more detailed, specific information about how you're tracking. Mm. Nah, and and I think like on that transparency piece and the storytelling, I feel like the best literal and figurative example of that was when Patagonia shared the challenge they had in reducing plastic packaging in their for their um their shipping and they they actually it was it was so interesting to read because it was like they were sharing the actual journey of testing how to do it better and what the challenge was and what the actual environmental impact was of not using a plastic bag to run the clothing through the conveyor belts to do the sorting and how much wastage was created in that moment. So what was that impact versus actually just getting a plastic bag or a recycled bag and just that level of transparently, literally about plastic bags and figuratively, you know, like about the business and doing something about it. I think it was just so refreshing. And I just wish, 
I, I hope that more and more brands can actually feel comfortable having what they're not that good at visible and and just accept that we're because it's humans we're humans doing things so i haven't met a perfect one yet so let's why do we expect businesses to be absolutely pure and perfect though that's beyond me yeah wholeheartedly i mean that's something we talk a lot about at manifest well yes we are a purpose-driven company and we have a a big, bold mission of building brands that change the world. And we do really use that as our scorecard, as the brands and campaigns and projects that we affiliate ourselves with. But going back to the green hushing point that you made, Angie, you know, there's so much analysis by paralysis. And if we're all holding back and not actually trying to make incremental change, we're never really going to get there in total when it comes to sustainability. So, yeah, I think more brands that are willing to stand up and say, hey, we're doing great over here, but we really need to do some more work here. And the example that you shared just now, Josh, with Patagonia, you know, that's that's not hiding your innovation. That's really trying to elevate the standard mm. of the industry so that collectively we can all do better. Exactly. And that then, you know, enables trust as well, just on the back of that. It's like if you're a transparent and open and honest brand and business and you're, and you're telling the whole context and the whole picture and the story, then you're actually going to have more trust, you know, established there with your customers and your stakeholders. And so, yeah, I think it's it's really important. And I think people, I, I appreciate it when there's a brand that, that actually tells the whole story and they're transparent and they're, you know, uh, like you said, Angie, that they're, they're being honest with where they're not doing so well, as well as the areas that they are doing well. I mean, that's just a win-win for me. For sure. We might pivot a little bit. Josh, you've obviously spent a little bit of time working in Scandinavia in Sweden and yeah, in the in the surfing media space and ocean conservation. Where do you see where Australia, I guess, is at in our journey of sustainability and sort of going at, going green with our efforts with brands and marketing versus what's been happening in that part of the world? Yeah, I'll never forget when I first got to Sweden and just looked around and felt like I'd been transported to a parallel universe. Trains running fast along tracks, windmills everywhere. It was it was quite a shock to my system, but it was also freezing cold and pretty miserable too. So like, you know, it's a great place, but you know, the climate is an issue up there for me. It's pretty hard at times to live up there. I think that we we are moving really well, I believe. I, I think Australia is on its way in a really big way. Like we we were leaders in solar technology. We've we've done a lot of good stuff in this country. I just think that what was different up there, particularly, was the politics around the issues in terms of how were the leaders of the country talking about how to progress with climate change as a consideration, and also like how do they look after the environment whilst also achieving economic growth and having a good society and doing their fair share when it comes to immigration, all these big issues that, you know, countries can get really kind of bogged down in, which is which is justifiable. I think that we've seen in Australia our really big step forward was probably off the back of the last election, the federal election, which was perceived as the climate election. We saw a lot of big change happen there and the and the rhetoric shift and then it became a bit more like what I felt I was experiencing in the Nordics, where it wasn't a there wasn't this polarizing debate about climate change as being a a thing that humans should be responsible for or doing something about. It was more about like how are we gonna just keep on doing something about this whilst you know making sure the economy functions and how much ambition can we really go for. So 
I feel like Australia's kind of there now politically, so that's probably taken place in the last year and a bit, which is really encouraging. We know that Aussies want this. So I think that was a big difference. I think that there's a lot of, um, you know, like I, I really loved, like I actually worked it for a clean tech investment fund in um, in the Nordics. That was my job um, when I was there and, yeah, dabbled in the surf media, got to work with the Fight for the Bite campaign, but I did that in the Nordics and did a bunch of um, kind of advocacy and activism in Norway particularly, which is still, you know, one of the biggest producers and exporters of oil and gas in the world. And they have a lot of Teslas, but they still they pay for those Teslas with oil and gas money. So I think it's really important to understand that the Nordics is pretty progressive on a lot of things, but Norway in particular has got a really tricky journey ahead in how they decouple their economic growth from the fossil fuel industry, whilst also ensuring that they can maintain the standards of living that they've enjoyed for quite some time and been able to execute a lot of really good green initiatives within their economy. But it has, yeah, it has been well and truly connected to fossil fuels. And I think you know, there are similarities in that respect. You know, Australia has relied a lot on fossil fuel kind of wealth or resource wealth to to kind of keep our economy moving in some ways. It's not everything. We know that's not really the truth of the economy, but there are parallels there with the Norwegian example. And particularly when you, you talk about, people like to talk about taxing our fossil fuels like Norway does, because we're not getting our fair share and look at all the wealth we could, you know, redistribute through um, society. But I think that we've got a great opportunity. The good thing that we're different from them on is that we don't tax it so well, so we're not hooked on it like Norwegians are. Other than that, I just felt like there was that level of investment from government in clean tech back, this is nearly 10 years ago for me, if you Googled clean tech, the most frequent use of the word was in Helsinki, and I think Singapore was second. So there there was a big focus up there in particular on this space and there were so many startups they had a lot of money going through the economy for startups to really test out early stage clean tech ideas so there was this very um big focus on innovation in in the nordics and i think that's why they were kind of leaping ahead so well on this on this space but what we see today in australia is that there is more and more funding going into that here now so it's probably a decade after the fact but you know, the good thing about us is that we've got all these resources here, untapped solar, untapped wind. We've got the opportunity to become the superpower on this that we can, you know, we can definitely become that. It seems like the political ambition is there now and the clear air to actually have a good crack at it as we transition away from the fossil fuel industry itself. So yeah, we're behind, but I think we're catching up pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, we have a we have a studio in Stockholm, and yeah, we always joke that they're about ten years ahead of us when it comes to these things. So, definitely a lot we can learn from that part of the world. I guess just on the point you were talking about in terms of politics closer to home, obviously we've seen in Victoria the recent end of forest logging, and I guess in New South Wales with the Lips and the the Nationals now, you know, putting an end to offshore oil and gas. We what are hope. your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are you, what are your thoughts on that with the changes in legislation there? Look, it's fantastic. Like a lot of people on the, I, I'm I'm quite out of the loop on the native forest logging legislation, how it how it all got achieved. Um, I'm quite narrowly focused on offshore oil and gas in Australia because that's what surfers for climate. We feel like that's our best chance to actually help surfers make a big contribution to to environmental change in this country. You know, we saw so many of them rally when the fight for the bite happened. You know, that was like a big 
activation of surfing communities around the country. And it was so encouraging to see that. What we've seen at the moment, I think I think the interesting thing, particularly about the most recent Liberal and National Party in New South Wales putting forward this this legislation to get a ban on offshore coastal, sorry, I should say oil and gas exploration in coastal waters of New South Wales, and then putting in place a a kind of piece of that legislation which would not enable any infrastructure to offshore oil and gas exploration, which is specifically related to PEP 11, this kind of zombie <laughs> acreage that that has been kind of with us for a long time now, which seems to come back from the dead every now and then. The idea is to enable state leadership on the issue, which I think off the back of the COVID pandemic, we noticed how much power states actually have. I think I'd probably share with everyone, like everyone would maybe agree in this call that we never thought that we would have borders between states, right? We never thought that would be possible in Australia. We had this idea that Australia was this one big thing politically and legally, but what I think we learned off the back of COVID is that the states actually have tremendous power to make decisions which can really go against what the federal government wants or, or requires. And I think that's, a, that's an interesting journey for, for advocates like us who, who are trying to get change for our environment. I think it's important to see that like states, if they make decisions, can make big impacts so leadership on the state level, even if the federal, you know, if the federal isn't doing enough or we feel like it could be doing more, we've got to remember that the states can do so much. So this native forest logging ban in, in Victoria is like a massive deal that's going to have a tremendous impact on the ability of that state to be a carbon sink into the future and to, you know, make sure that biodiversity is preserved and things like that. And with this potential ban in New South Wales, we should know where that sits by the end of the year. But that would be a tremendous impact to, in terms of the avoided CO2 emissions from new exploration off the coast there. So the interesting piece I'm finding is, are people ready to accept a conservative party doing a good thing for the environment? Are they ready to actually let that sink in, that the ideology can actually function for the environment and not always be the destroyer? which has been the kind of narrative that we've had for, for a very long time in this country. And can can the public really understand that the federal version of the Liberals or Nationals versus the state one in New South Wales versus the WA one over here, can we really understand that there is a lot of diversity within these political parties and that leadership can be very different in different states? It's an interesting question. I think that we're going to learn if we're able to be okay with leadership from that that side and i hope we can because it really doesn't matter who's doing it the the outcome is what we're chasing right like we want to we want to get legislation passed that can do good for the planet and so we need to get used to this and and you know we saw in the uk's had conservative governments for a very long time and they've been leaders on the environment they've been way better than us at it for a very long time the uk so it's an interesting thing like can we decouple the ideology from the climate action or the outcome that we're chasing. And, and we're going to learn about that over the coming years, I think. I think it's interesting as well if you think about, I mean, obviously there's a shift there with public perception and trust and what they're saying. So the Liberal Nats are having uh, trouble convincing people they're telling the truth and that's because we're in this context of mistrust. Mm. And bringing that back to business, I think 
one of the things that I'd take comfort in is that when, you know, businesses that have been for the last 50 years understood to be a shareholder primacy base, where that's the collective intelligence is that they're there for seeking profits. And what we're now moving towards is a more stakeholder governance-led economy where actually, you know, you're managing more than profits, you're managing people, planet, communities, and the impact you have on those too. But thinking about ESG, to use that buzzword, but when businesses are meeting those high performance standards, it's actually good for business too. And we're seeing that come through in the changes that big businesses are making. You know, I mean, there's data out around the shareholder returns you get being two and a half, two, 2.6 times higher for businesses who are meeting high standards of environmental and social performance. And so regardless of what the driver is or regardless of yeah, what makes people make the change? The point is that they're making the change, but we've got this challenge now, paradoxically, that people want the change to happen, but they don't trust that it, the people who are telling them that it, it will. Yeah, yeah. No, it's super interesting. It's super interesting. And I think that whole thing about the 2.6% increase in value return from this way of making decisions is is interesting politically because we know that there's so much demand from the Australian public for action on climate. I think some of the most recent research says that there's 73% of people want action on climate from our leadership. And so there is going to be an electoral return by taking this issue seriously and figuring out how a political party can really lean into it. And, you know, like that's what will take place, you would think, with progressive, more progressive environmental policy from any political party maybe more so from the main two that have dominated politics for so long like the greens as a political movement have grown because there wasn't there wasn't enough happening from those parties but as they both lean into this which will be a good thing it will it may well have electoral returns which might re shift things maybe back to the way they were too um so when the two party system was actually stronger so it'll be really interesting i mean once again, it's important to differentiate, you know, there there is a difference between the federal system and the state system. We do have this almost multi-party situation on the federal level, which is really interesting and has its own challenges and opportunities. Um, but yeah, on the state level, I think I think what we're seeing, at least in New South Wales, is that there is a race to the top on these environmental issues. There isn't as much polarization at all, uh, to be honest. Like, you could argue that it's like a really great example of what we think we could see across the country. Definitely. I guess with the political example that you raise, I mean, it's very relevant for brands and corporations as well. You know, if they are just starting out and they have previously not really said anything or done anything within Mm. the sustainability space, how should they go about getting started and how are they going to be able to tackle this mistrust? Maybe Angie, if you want to start with this and then, yeah, Jad, and I understand you've got a lot of projects going on at Stone and Wood. It'd be awesome to hear about how you're planning on tackling that there. Yeah, I think starting out with measuring and managing your impact is where I would recommend businesses start if they're beginning this journey. And one of the ways that we recommend people doing that is through our free B Impact Assessment tool, which is available to any business, any industry, and they can go in and look at how their business is performing against a five impact areas, environment being one of those. And once you do kind of get that assessment, whether you submit or not, you can still use that to become certified. Whether you submit or not to become certified, you can still use that framework as a as a means of measuring and managing your impact and getting some confidence around what you are doing well and where you can improve. 
and taking that information to inform how you go to market. So, I, I mean, I'd sort of see the role of the of the marketing team, if that's the person who's leading at the front or the sustainability team or maybe even people in culture team, whoever's leading that front has a really important role to influence the whole of business around the reason why impact is really important. And again, as we said earlier, cascading that throughout the organisation so that you're living that, then you can have the confidence to, to lean into it and to communicate that more broadly. Yeah, that's awesome. Awesome. And just on the back of, you know, um, what Angie was saying about the, the starting with measuring impact, you know, the, the BIA tool. So that's a, a tool that anyone, any business can use through B-Lab Australia, um, New Zealand. It's a beautiful tool to, to start with and just to, I guess, benchmark yourself against best practice. So, yeah, I just thought I'd give, give a little bit of a plug for that. You know, we love the we love B-Lab and, and the B Corp tool. It's just such a, a great way to measure impact and a great place to start for anyone looking to commence their journey in this space. I think um, a few points that I'd like to share for, I guess, any business that kind of wants to lean into this space is, is really start with your why, start with your purpose, you know, lead, lead with authenticity and definitely look at employing a third party verification or validation like your B Corps. There's plenty of other, you know, certifications out there as well. Not everyone has to be a B Corp. You know, I think for us, we see B Corp as like the gold standard and, and a great way to hold yourself to account because, you know, by nature of the certification, you have to keep getting better and keep improving. And, and there's that kind of impetus there, um, which is, you know, really healthy. But, you know, there, there's, you know, a plethora of other really great, credible certifications out there as well um, and ways to look at third party validation. You know, traceability, I think traceability is going to be a big one moving forward, especially for consumers. And I think that's a, a really, really um, good one to look at. You know, providing the raw data and visibility around supply chains is really important. You know, taking that stakeholder approach is also a really big one as well. And just recognising the interconnectedness of, you know, complex social and environmental problems. It's, it's, um, can be very challenging to, to kind of look at things from a systems approach which is is really something that we're we're kind of looking at you know and and i think a lot of a lot of businesses that are kind of a little bit more mature or a bit more along on their sustainability journey i think the next step is really looking at you know things like scope three emissions and looking at more of these systemic challenges so for us for instance something that we're currently exploring is you know our impact you know scope three on things like upstream procurement of, of malt and barley farming. Beer is such an agricultural product, you know, with basically malt, malt water, hops and yeast, essentially. So we really owe it <laughs> to our consumers to be looking at the way that um, our ingredients are, are farmed and grown and, and the way that we're procuring these raw ingredients. So for us, you know, things like regenerative farming, you know, sustainably managed farms, for barley and uh, for hops um, is something that we're looking at, you know, and that's a really great place to start. You know, for us, we've, we've figured out that in terms of material impact, that's a huge one. So that's a great place for us to keep, you know, to focus on and, and to explore further. In terms of, you know, what we're doing at the brew house, so we're upgrading our site here in Mwillambar, which is really exciting for us. Firstly, because we're actually putting a tap house in, we're putting a tasting room in, um, so we can invite our local punters and the local community to come in and, and enjoy a skewy of, uh, of Pacific Ale, which um, will nice. be an exciting day when that happens. 
But um, secondly, um, you know, for, for myself and, and our team here, we've got some really exciting projects that we're looking at in the sustainability space for, for the upgrade on the site. So we're looking at things like CO2 recapturing, renewable heat generation, breweries, you know, in terms of our boilers, we go through quite a lot of gas, um, which is something that we're not super keen on. Um, yeah, so breweries by essence are very energy and resource dependent, and that's Generally, the focus we take is, is around looking at our, our water, gas, gas, electricity, energy um, efficiencies. So things like solar panels, you know, we've currently decked out our, our brewery roof with, with solar panels here in the Northern Rivers. And we also have an RO plant. So we actually take some of the wastewater from the brewing process and reuse that in utilities, uh, for utilities and for the brewery. So, you know, really looking at it from a, a, a circular economic point of view, that's another area we're looking at is like how do we actually move towards a circular economy and reduce you know not only strive to reduce reuse and recycle but looking at redesigning um, some of our supply chains redesigning the way that we do business and brew beer really is um yeah something that we're we're kind of exploring and, and we're passionate about so yeah the future is kind of exciting for us and um we're stoked to kind of be part of in the industry in Australia, I think the, the the craft beer industry and the brewing industry more broadly, like there seems to be more of an appetite for for brewers to kind of push into the sustainability space. You know, there's more and more um, brewers that are they're getting B Corp certified. So Young Henry's just got announced recently, which is really cool to see them um, attain B Corp certification. You know, there's, there's also um, breweries like Capital, for instance, that um you know they have a carbon neutral certification exciting very cool i think it's great that you do take sustainability so seriously but i also loved your comment about bringing in the community for connection and a beer on tap um and i think that's one of the things we can learn from your brand and also other brands like who gives a crap i mean you might have seen recently they got their solar panels on their warehouse spelled out to say we give a crap um, and that's a really cool way of like doing a sustainable initiative and embedding your brand and communicating that in a meaningful way. I've done the work and it's fun and it's a, that sense of being serious about your mission but not taking yourself too seriously, which I think is really great. So, yeah, mm. it's it's good to see. 100%, 100% Angie. And just on top of that really quickly, I'd like to share that, you know, the Ingrained Foundation, so the fact that we have a vehicle and a public ancillary fund where we're able to di- distribute funds to local grassroots nonprofits um, has been just such a such an amazing opportunity for us to connect with nonprofit organisations. And you know, I've had the pleasure of meeting Josh a few times prior to you know having a yarn this morning. And the work that um, Josh and his team are doing with Surface for Climate is super inspiring. And you know, it, it's local nonprofits like that that really keep us grounded and keep us embedded in the community, like you were saying, Angie. So. Yeah, I guess that's just a call out, you know, for for anyone that that is looking to progress in this space as well as a business or as an entrepreneur or a social entrepreneur. Look at, you know, the nonprofits in your area and the work that they're doing in the impact space because they can be a really great source of inspiration and a really great opportunity in terms of partnerships. You know, I think consumers really appreciate when businesses partner with nonprofits because it adds that level of, I guess, you know, authenticity. And it also helps raise awareness and, and potentially funds for, for that nonprofit entity. So, yeah, just a call out to all the beautiful nonprofits in across our regions and across our country. And, um, yeah, and awesome work that Josh and his team are doing as well with Surfers for Climate. 
Awesome. Oh, thanks, Jarden. Yeah, I mean, look, we don't get any of it done without support. You know, there's been quite a few karma kegs that have gone our way to help us fund our work from Stone and Wood. You know, so it's um, and it's just a really cool look. I I, I love being able to be in this position as a nonprofit in Australia right now. I do feel like there's this momentum behind the space. It is ascendant. You know, you could argue sometimes that it's ascendant for the wrong reasons. It might mean that government's not doing its job and the nonprofits have to, you know, lean in to get something done. But we we don't really achieve it without the support of the corporate sector, as well as through this kind of foundational giving, which you've you've set up there with the ingrained foundation. So, I mean, I think the interesting thing for me, like just because I guess the belief for us at the at the very end of the day is that legislation is kind of what really locks in the big change. And I love businesses taking initiative and I love what B Corp and the B Lab does to help businesses get on the journey. But I just often wonder, like, where's the point at which the initiative and the leadership converts into a regulatory outcome? So that you mentioned with Stone and Wood, there's the carbon capture that's going to happen from the brewing process. And it's like, when does that become a regulated piece of what it takes to be a brewer in the years the decade that we live in, you know, because that's interesting, right? Like imagine if there was a regulation to say, well, look, as brewers, you need to do this. You need to install this. Mm. You're going to be a brewer in this country and regulate it and go get on with it. These other guys led, drove down the costs of doing it because they experimented. They had leadership. They had the community behind them because the community wanted it. We're not going to just wait for you to do it anymore. Like here's a regulation. Good luck. Got a couple of years to do it. Like I just wonder when the when the switch happens on that because then it scales. You know, it happens pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. All the companies die that don't do it. I totally agree. We all have a role totally. to play, and I think that the reform always follows the action. So this is why we need the businesses and the community and the consumers and the buyers and decision makers and nonprofits all working together towards these common goals. Mm. And that's when we'll see that reform. But yeah, we've all got that sense of urgency for that change to make it as usual, business as usual, or you know how we live. And yeah, I'm optimistic like you, Josh. It's ascendant. I like that word. <laughs> <laughs> I would just say, just as the final word from Surface for Climate, I have to obviously throw in a plug for whoever's going to be listening to this podcast. I I think that it's about imperfect action, not perfect inaction. So if there's anyone listening to this who who wants to lean into this issue and to help achieve a very real outcome for our oceans, we're working hard on that specific change that we want to see in this country, and that is to get a, a ban on new offshore oil and gas in Australian waters. And I think what's really encouraging is like, We've now got leadership on this issue, an example in New South Wales, which is really a very mainstreaming of the issue, right? Like if the Liberals and Nationals are leading on this, it means that all of Australia is basically ready. Like this is a a sign that on this particular issue, fossil fuels are becoming cigarettes very quickly. And if we all remember what that felt like when the pubs suddenly had clear air in them, like it felt like it was overnight when it happened. It was crazy. And I think fossil fuels are very much on the edge of that now. And if more businesses and if more stakeholder groups lean into this narrative about we don't need these, we need to move off them right now, it will happen just like cigarettes vanished from our public spaces. Fossil fuels will vanish from our energy system 
we export 75% of our gas in this country, 75%. So we don't really need as much as we have been told we need to look for. So we can, there's a lot of great research out there about the fact that we don't need as much of it for our energy system. So I'd just encourage anyone hearing this. There's a lot of campaigners out there. We're one of them. We've got a very specific target and we believe that it can be done very quickly, but we need a chorus of voices singing from the same song sheet. We can all have our different melodies and different parts to play, but we can all do it if we lean into it. Absolutely. As a final question, just to round out this episode, I'd love to ask you all what the future of sustainability and brand marketing looks like. Maybe starting with you, Jordan. Yeah, sure. Um, I think the future of sustainability is regenerative. I think taking a cue from uh, a great modern economist, Kate Raworth, the donut economics framework is a really good way to conceptualize, I guess, the future of sustainability. In my opinion, I think a model like the donut takes in the the kind of complexity and the nuance of the the problems that we're, I guess, faced um, in this day and age. So yeah, for me, that's a really great tool. And for those who haven't seen it, it's obviously a donut shape. So you've got the social foundation in the middle, and then you've got the ecological ceiling on the outside, which is based on Rockstrom ecological kind of ceilings um, around, you know, climate change and ocean acidification, et cetera, et cetera. And then the social foundations are actually based on um, the the sustainable development goals. So it's a really cool tool. And and what I actually love about it the most is you're really trying to strike that balance in between, you know, that kind of donut space in between the two circles and trying to find that balance around, you know, a regenerative system and um, a distributive economy. And I think for me, that really speaks deeply around trying to strike that balance, you know. So for some countries around the world, uh, for some some countries, they actually might need to grow their GDP. So they might need to have a period of growth to actually look after the social foundations and give give their communities, you know, a an equitable way of living. However, some countries might actually need to potentially look at being more intentional around growth. So that that kind of nuanced approach, taking a balanced approach to the way that we're looking at sustainability for me is really important and it's really a systems oriented approach um, and recognizing the complexity of the system so for me that's yeah that's a big one I think it's also I think authenticity traceability all the things we've been talking about on this podcast are really important and I actually think that's going to be a big a big one moving forward especially traceability I actually think that a lot of companies whether whether they choose to do it or they'll kind of be forced to by regulators will most likely have to put traceability information on their packaging and their marketing materials for consumers. I think there's going to be a shift in the future. And that's really, I think, a demand from consumers because they actually want to know the impact that the products that they're buying is having on the environment or the, you know, the communities in which that product is is created or or the materials are sourced. So I think that's that's a big one. I mean, I think that the future of sustainability is regenerative and I think it's also going to be have a heavy, heavy focus on on traceability and visibility on the impacts of that product. Mm, I totally agree. We're seeing lots of forces at work there. So you talked a little bit about the the force behind consumers having higher expectations and then also regulatory regulations and reforms in that space. And what we're also seeing through the B Corp community is as well is the the leading businesses that are 
driving the change while others catch up um, and, and follow their lead mm. and while governments also take, take a kind of more holistic um, view of the system to make change. I think it's pretty exciting. I mean, how far ahead in the future do we look? And I really have no idea, to be honest, because who knows where technology will take us. But I do, I do see that the role of the marketer in this mix is, is shifting to being much more accountable in the organizations around the impact that we have. So, you know, the historic view of, of marketing, it was usually at the end of a process and that has shifted over time. And now I think that our communicators and our marketers will be really actively involved in the critical thinking and the understanding of the brand and the authenticity of the impact that an organization is having on all of its stakeholders. So it's not just about what what's the message that we're sending. It's also, yeah, what's the impact that we're having through the regenerative, regenerative cycle of like managing the end of life of products and thinking about supply chain impact and all of those other kind of knock-on effects. And I think, yeah, I agree with Jardin, that the everything's going to change as a result. You know, <laughs> um, one of our B Corps, one of our B Corp legal firms, uh, Mark Lawyers in Sydney, have this idea of radical compliance, where you know businesses that are being bold and they're complying with things like greenwashing regulation and other, you know, self regulating themselves as well and being really confident in where they are in terms of complying with the standards and the expectations gives them a springboard to be more confident to innovate and tell different stories and move into new spaces. And I think that's one of the benefits of B Corp certification as well, is that it gives you confidence to know what you're doing well and what you're not doing so well and kind of take that story forward. And yeah, I think moving ahead, we're going to see much more nuanced storytelling, much more detailed storytelling and authentic brands. And in some cases, as Jaden said, we'll see less consumption in some areas and more growth in others and um, a more global kind of view of impact in business. Definitely. I think the complexity around it is, you know, I guess there's two avenues. There's the green growth option in terms of, you know, some of the kind of environmental and social problems we're facing. It's it's really that whole approach around, you know, humans always innovate and we always create markets and, and you know, we're great at leveraging things and creating tools and technologies, et cetera. Um, so that's that's one way to think about it. And then the other way to think about it is more of a degrowth paradigm where it's like, you know, Western countries with that have historically been holding all the capital and there's been a concentration of wealth in these Western countries may need to actually degrow their economies and make room for other countries to actually have more of a growth period. And so that's that's a really interesting, I guess, thing to contemplate. And it's it's actually really complex and involves a lot of moving cogs and different disciplines. So that's going to require a multidisciplinary approach. And I don't think it, it's actually very, very difficult um, to reduce that into a, into a simplistic kind of solution. So I think, yeah, going back to that complexity point prior, I think um, the future of, of sustainability, it's going to require a lot of complex thinking and, and a lot of tools and skills to navigate that complexity. So yeah, it's a really interesting time. And I think there's also, I guess, a convergence of, you know, more of a, a systems approach to solving mm. solutions. So you've got, you know, your institutions like the UN, um, you've got, um, you know, your institutions like the World Economic Forum, etc. But then you've got a real big growth from the grassroots, you know, you've got a lot of grassroots movements like localism. Um, you know, we have a, a local influencer here in the Northern Rivers, who's a, a kind of proponent of, of keeping things local and, and the, imp the positive impacts that has 
on you know supply chains you know um, reducing the amount of of travel needed um, for supply chain and then you know looking at the, the kind of richness and relationships that are built when you focus more locally on local communities so I think there's this kind of really interesting I guess progression or per, you know there's a real kind of progressive uh, movement happening people know mm -hmm. that change needs to occur and there's a lot of change happening so I think there's also on top of that a lot of unknown around what that looks like whether that is more of a macro kind of systems based approach where there's more laws and regulations and institutions actually shifting in a positive direction or whether it's a grassroots approach where consumers and individuals are kind of changing systems from the bottom up. So, yeah, I'm really interested to see, I guess, how that plays out over the next few years or 10 years or 20 years and, and whether it's, you know, it goes one route or the other or whether it's a bit of a mixture or a hybrid of both. It's exciting times. Mm -hmm. It certainly is. And I think just even looking at the generations that are coming up, not just, you know, Generation Z, but Generation Alpha and how much gusto they have to see shit get done after watching a lot of inaction, I think, maybe from past generations and the sense of urgency that they have and just ability to see through the smoke and mirrors, I think. I like to think that in the next 10 years, we're going to hopefully see a lot of progress happen. We have to. <laughs> we have we to do. see the progress happen. <laughs> we don't have a choice. We've got to, yeah, we have no choice. <laughs> we, you know, we're really like we all have a responsibility to drive the change we need in the world. So, yeah, it's going to happen. I'm confident. Love yeah, the positive totally, attitude. Totally. <laughs> I, think, I think it's also going to be it's going to take businesses, you know, conscious businesses, B Corps and the like and social entrepreneurs that can actually see um, a social or an environmental problem that, is, is really related and aligned to their business problem that they're solving. Um, and they can kind of partner with, whether it's partner with a nonprofit like Surface for Climate, um, like I was speaking uh, earlier in the podcast, you know, or potentially even create their own philanthropic entity, you know, like for instance, Stone and Wood, we've, we've created the Ingrained Foundation, which is their own public ancillary fund. I think that's another option as well. And I think we're going to see more of that. And I hope we see more of that because I actually think that's, that's the future as well. There's, I think there's a lot of really great stuff happening in the, in the philanthropic space and the nonprofit space. And there's a lot that, you know, sustainability professionals and impact professionals working in um, the business or the commercial space can learn from their nonprofit counterparts. Mm, yep, definitely. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. This has been a really fantastic conversation. Let's see where we are in 10 years. Oh, thanks, Isabel. Thanks for having me. <laughs> That's all we have time for today. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to Spotify or Apple Music so you never miss an episode. Stay blessed and stay fresh. <laughs>